So we're going to take a break from Colossians this week, and we're going to look at Psalm 2. And Psalm 2 opens with a question. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? Right? Sometimes the raging of the world is placed straight before our eyes. It's clear for everyone to see, prominent. Right? If you're angry or frustrated sometimes... Right? If you're discouraged by others who take advantage of you, then know that Psalm 2 is for you. And if you're discouraged by the increasing divisions in our nation, then it's for you too. Right? It, it sets up this contrast between the nations who want to rule and the king who will rule. In fact, in Psalm 2, God calls us to recognize our limitations, to welcome the Son as King, and to take refuge in God. And my hope and prayer for you this morning is that you would be among those who take refuge in God. So let's read Psalm 2 together. Why do the nations rage? And the peoples plot in vain. The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me. You are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Have you ever been in a position where you wanted someone else's authority? Right? You had ambition, a desire to move up, to be in control. Or have you ever suffered at the hands of somebody else who had that aspiration of personal gain at your expense? People seek what others have. Right? They, they covet. And it's not just a coveting of things, it's also a coveting of position. Right. How many times have you heard somebody look at somebody else's promotion and say, he didn't deserve that. I could have done that job. You know, in the Gospels, when the centurion says, I too am a man under authority, right, he understood the place of authority in life. And Jesus responded to him and says, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. See, God's people see themselves in submission to God's authority. 
And ultimately, we are all accountable to God. Yet today, we're saturated by messaging that says we should be our own authority. Right? On one level, this can be seen as just avoiding accountability. But we might call this expressive individualism or radical autonomy. Autonomos means self-law. Right? For each individual to set themselves up as God. You may even have seen gospel tracts from time to time with either you know, the little who's going to be king or who's going to be sit on the throne of your heart. Right? There's a, the little picture of a throne. And in the who will be king tract, it's, uh, you know, there, there's a little earth and it's, is Jesus going to be king or are you going to set yourself up as king? Right? There, there's a gospel relevance to this. Right? And the question is, who will be king? So Psalm 2 zooms way out on the wide level of kings and nations. And at that level, desire is set in the context of craving God's authority. And the authority that he's given to his anointed. And so that's the genesis of Psalm 2. Mankind is a jealous sort. right? We take position at the expense of others. And when one person falls, then there's others that are just willing to come in and take up that authority, right? Somebody else will do it. And so when we zoom way out on the scale of rulers and nations, we want what God has given to his anointed king, his son. And so the the context for Psalm 2 can be found even back in the promise to David in, in 2 Samuel 7. God says that David's throne would be forever and that his descendant would reign on that throne. 2 Samuel 7, 13 and 14 says, He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And I will be a father to him, and he shall be a son. You see, King David had his detractors too, and they wanted his throne and position. And Psalm 2 may begin with David... But it's fulfilled in Christ. And so the history of redemption builds upon these promises to David. And they find their fulfillment in Jerusalem on the cross. And their ultimate fulfillment when Christ returns. Okay. So the nations want his authority and kingdom for themselves. But that's not how it ends. All right. Psalm 2 shows us that God and his son will have victory in the end. Because he is the one ordained to rule. And God calls everyone to follow the Son. So mankind lives in rebellion against God. But Christ will have victory in the end. Therefore God calls us to follow him. But those who want authority, and they tend to overlook their limitations, don't they? And so we, we open with the first few verses here. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves that the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. We are finite people. We sin. We miss things that we should be aware of. Right? Leaders have flaws. Often they make decisions that may seem best to them at the time based on limited knowledge. But... Psalm 2 helps us to see in the context here that God is much greater 
right? And so it opens with this rhetorical question. Why do the nations rage? Because it highlights that rebellion against the sun is meaningless. It's senseless. It makes no sense. But in our sin, we do stupid things. Right? We reframe the world in our own eyes. We don't see clearly. And we refuse to recognize the absurdity of it all. We resist the authority that God has put in place. And so the kings are not the only ones who rage. It's intrinsic to humanity. The nations rage. Right? Our personal desires bring sin and strife. And when our ambition is not placed in submission to God, it brings jealousy and disorder. And so the kings show this at a national level, but the same sin is present in each of us. It plays out on the stage of our lives. Right? Mankind possesses this appalling lack of humility. Right? We all think that we could do better. Armchair quarterbacks, we question the calls of the referees. Right? Now it says the kings of the earth, right? these are people who have authority in this life. Right? They have the power to force their will on others. They're able to get what they want. And despite they have that, they take offense to the Lord. Why? Why do the kings set themselves against God's anointed? They covet the blessing that he gives to his son. Right? They want it for themselves. It's coveting, it's selfishness, and it's blasphemous. So, so think of Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. At the end of his ministry, he came into the city with crowds cheering him. But beneath the surface, the rulers of the land grumbled against him. And so there's a tension there in the Gospels. We see it play out. Right? On the surface, everything seems fine. But beneath the surface, there's betrayal. And Psalm 2 gives us the bigger context of what is happening. God will have victory in the end. And so Christ will reign and those who stand for their own name will fail. But they're invited to serve the Son. Okay. So it's a vain rebellion. The rulers plot in vain. Right? The kings of the earth set themselves. The rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast their cords away from us. They plot in vain, they take counsel together, and they murmur. Have you ever murmured against someone? This is something that people do in our fallenness, right? We compare ourselves to others and we want what they have because we feel that we deserve more. And in our discontentment, we harden our hearts towards others. Right? These rulers who murmur against the Lord's anointed will not be satisfied in their murmuring. Right? Their discontentment feeds their hearts jealousy and anger. And we have done the same in our own way. Right? Each of us has been jealous. Each of us has desired position or what somebody else has. And the result of our murmuring is not justice. Right? We may think it's justice in our minds. Because right? we, we twist things to, to set the world in context of us rather than the context of the way the world really is. Right? So it's not justice 
Instead, it just hardens our own hearts and it damages us. And so for those who murmur against the sun, they need to realize that their plotting is in vain and that nothing good will come of it because it destroys them. So let's read verses 4 through 6. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. The Lord, the one who sits in the heavens, laughs. He's sitting above all of these events. He's not persuaded or concerned by them, by what the kings are planning. Given the absurdity of this situation, he laughs. He's amused. And notice how seriously the kings take themselves. And God responds in a way that disrupts our frame of reference here. So in light of this, God does not negotiate or adjust his plans. And when the true king is installed, there will be no one to argue or to challenge his judgment. It will be done. And as the passage continues, his tone becomes more serious. And he affirms that he has set his king in Zion. In the face of the scheming and the murmuring of the rulers, he reaffirms to them what he has chosen to do. He will set up a king in Jerusalem. And several years ago, my wife and I ran into some cult members who were teaching a false gospel. And one of the points that they made was that God did not really intend for Jesus to die on the cross. That was an accident. You see, their theology didn't really have a need for sacrifice. And so this was something that they, you know, had to explain at some level. And, but that view is not consistent with Scripture. Right? It wasn't an accident. The whole purpose of the Gospels is to show us how this unfolds. Right? Every gospel is pointing towards Jerusalem. In fact, every gospel spends a significant portion of the text of that gospel there in the events leading up to the cross. The gospels point to what Jesus had to do on the cross. And God the Father knew what had to take place. And this is the entire focus of the gospels. So how Jesus' ministry will end up in Jerusalem, right? A significant portion of the time and effort and text of the gospel points to this culminating purpose in redemptive history on the cross. So even those who plotted against Jesus were fulfilling prophecy as they worked against God there in that moment. And God says, you are my son today, I have begotten you. The kings plot, but the Lord laughs. And we should welcome the son as king. Verse 7, I will tell of the decree, the Lord said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Father loves the Son. 
The Lord said to me, you are my son today, I have begotten you. There's a loving relationship between the Father and the Son. The authority of Christ is affirmed and guaranteed by the Father's love for him. And Hebrews 1 draws on Psalm 2 to stress Christ as God's Son being superior to the angels. Right? It then quotes from other Psalms, Psalm 45, Psalm 102, Psalm 110, to reinforce the authority of the Son. Right? So the relationship between the Father and the Son establishes Jesus' authority. And it also is a foundation for our relationship with the Father because Christ reconciles us to God. It's only through the Son that we have access to the Father. And so the Father loves the Son, and he gives the Son a heritage. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. God loves the Son and will ensure his heritage. The Son doesn't have needs specifically, Because he has the Father. And the Father promises the Son, the nations, the nations of the earth, will be given as a heritage. And Christ will rule all the earth, but his rule is not based on this sort of desire to conquer, per se, as much as it's as a heritage given to the Son by the Father. So compare the relationship between the Father and the Son to the attitude of the kings. The, The kings will take what they want by force, if necessary. The son only has to ask and the father gives it to him. Right? What, what's your relationship with God like? How do you get what you want? Right? Do you take what you want by force? Or do you come to the father by prayer? Know that he will provide for your needs. You see, the son's kingdom is in line with the father's will. And what about your own life? Is it in line with the father's will? Or is your life a construction of your own will? Right. talks about this rod of iron. Right? The son shall rule, and his rule will be strong. Right? The strength of his rule comes from the father. And there may be an intended contrast here between the shepherding of the nations as presented by the rod and the breaking of the rebellious as represented by the potter's vessel. Okay. So the contrast, I think, is real. Right? A choice is placed before us. Which side will you take? This choice... These two ways, they're all over Scripture, right? In Psalm 1, there's the way of the righteous and the way of the wicked, right? Which side will you take? Will you be shepherded or will you be broken? God never gave Israel opportunity to fulfill Psalm 2 in their day, right? The early church also experienced great oppression. In Revelation chapter 2, verses 25 through 27, Jesus speaks to believers under persecution, and he applies Psalm 2 in their life. He says this, Only hold fast what you have until I come. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. As with when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father. And so Revelation 2 extends this heritage even to God's people. And brothers and sisters, be shepherded, right? Take refuge in God. And see that Psalm 2 is is used here to, to extend this promise of this heritage, this heritage that God's people are waiting on, right? 
and this ultimate victory that will come in the end. And so we can take refuge in God. Um, Verse 10. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. So this section speaks with contrasting thoughts. right? Be wise and be warned. Serve with fear. Rejoice with trembling. How do we make sense of these admonitions to follow combined with the severity of not following. John Piper said that the only safe place from God is in God. Right? Those who take refuge from him will find blessing, and those who do not will perish. And there's lots of dangers in this world, but the greatest danger you will ever face is the wrath of God. So the choice is before you. Do you take side with the kings or with the Son? Take refuge in God this morning. Right, so we serve the Lord in submission to the Son. Right, it says serve. The rulers were called to serve the Lord with reverence, but they wanted that authority for themselves. And what about you? Do you see yourself as being in charge or having some authority? Right, we have to serve someone, and everybody serves something. Even if it's the idols of your own heart, but God calls us to serve him instead. Right? So if you have authority, then know that you lead as a servant of the king. It says, kiss the son and rejoice with trembling. Right? So this submission to God's son, rather than rebelling, they follow God's appointed ruler. Right? God's powerful, but his people are safe in him. And outside of God's care, there's wrath, but safety and protection are found in Christ. Psalm 1 captures a bit of this gladness of serving the Lord well. Know that the Lord, he is good. It's he who made us and we are his. We are his people. We are the sheep of his pasture. So we've seen how Christ will have victory. We are to serve him and even more, we are to take refuge in him. Right? In the ending of Psalm 2, blessed are those who take refuge. There's this admonition there. Um, it's a call to each of us. It's also a reminder that there is a mission of reconciliation left to be done. Right? It should be our heart's desire to see men and women reconciled to God. So may we find joy in seeing people turn to him. The psalm does not end in destruction, but an offer of hope to those people. It's our heart's desire that they place their faith in Christ. And so the blessing here sounds a lot like Psalm 1. Psalm 1 is full of this, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. So both Psalms deal with this righteous and unrighteous contrast. The righteous are blessed and the unrighteous will perish. Where Psalm 1 focuses in on the heart of the individual. Psalm 2 focuses on the fate of nations. And so the lens may be zoomed in or it may be zoomed out, but it still applies to all people and it applies to you personally. So don't think that just because Psalm 2 is talking about kings and nations that it's not talking about you. 
Rather, Psalm 2 gives us this wider context for those who follow the Son. Right? It offers a hope and a future. History is not meaningless. God has set redemption in the context of history. And so we look forward to what is coming and we take refuge in Him. Okay, so how do we apply this? So I'm going to read through eight applications here and then we'll go through them one by one. First, don't be surprised when the nations rage. It's going to happen. Second, know that they plot in vain. And third, we do not have to fear. Four, point people to Christ. Five, submit your ambition to Christ. Six, submit your life to Christ. Seven, God's people are given a heritage in Christ. And then eight, take refuge in him. Okay, so first, don't be surprised when the nations rage. So when you see hypocrisy and when you see sin in the world, don't be shocked by it. That's the world doing its thing. It's going to happen. I've heard people angry or reject God in their life because of the actions of relatives, loved ones, friends. People are going to disappoint you. But God is faithful. This is not new. The nations have been raging for a long time and they're going to continue to rage because sin is sin and it's destructive. So don't let that surprise you. If you get too comfortable here, if we see the world as our home, then we may start to think that everything will be set right by some other means. Right? Better education. Better government. I'm reminded of, you know, the the old, uh, you know, kind of like Disney, Epcot kind of, uh, a better future through science, you know, that kind of thing. Right? There, there was this promise of modernism that we were going to make a better future for ourselves. Almost like a, a technological tower of Babel. Right? And the, the world would be brought to a better place. And today we focus on technology, but now it's internet and artificial intelligence. What we need to see is that whatever changes around us, fundamentally, people do not change. Right? The, the fundamental aspects of what makes you a person is imprinted upon you. In the image of God and impacted by sin. Put us in a different place. Put us in a different situation and our hearts will still seek our idols. Now there may be situations where Our idols are more concentrated. It makes it harder for us. But don't be surprised when people sin. Don't be surprised when the nations rage. Instead, consider yourself a sojourner until he returns. Now, two, know that they plot in vain. 
right? There, there's two sides to this. One, we may fear the vain hopes of others, right? Those nations raging. Two, we could do the opposite. We may place our hope in one of those nations instead of Christ. So first of all, we see the news, we see whatever the other side is, and we're fearful that they will win. We're fearful of what they will do. We need to know that their plotting is in vain. Second, God attends us to place our hopes in Christ. So don't place your hopes in the nations. Right? People can fall into this on one side or the other. Right? You may even push back a little bit and say, well, you know, politically this is the right thing to do. I'm not being apolitical here. Right? There, there certainly are ways that uh, align with God's will within the realm of, of how we interact with the community around us. But just be careful that your hope in the nation does not replace your hope in Christ. It's a question of what's primary. Right? Your hope in Christ should be the basis for your understanding of the world around us. And that will impact us. That will help us to come to certain conclusions. But we run into danger when we place the nation above Christ. Three, we don't have to fear. So when others seek personal gain, do you fear them? Right. Acts 4, after Peter and John were released from prison, Peter quotes Psalm 2 in Acts, in light of persecution. And this is what he says. Acts 4, verse 27. For truly, actually he quotes Psalm 2 a little earlier, but then this is his application of it. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. Okay. Therefore, be bold, knowing that those who are against God plan in vain. Right? The apostles looked at Psalm 2 as an encouragement in the midst of persecution. Their, their knowledge of Christ's victory gave them boldness when they were in prison. Right? They, the knowledge of Christ's victory right, impacted them. May God grant you the same boldness to proclaim the gospel, knowing that the threats of those who stand against God are in vain. Right? Therefore, we have boldness in Christ to share the gospel. We point people to Christ. That was Peter's response to Psalm 2. Right? In trying times when everyone seeks their own way, when, when everyone does what seems right in their own eyes, what are we going to do? We are to serve the Lord's anointed. And we can do this by loving our neighbors, by proclaiming the good news of Christ, and have boldness in Christ. Okay, five, submit your ambition to Christ. 
So drawing on the last point, we point people to Christ. So be wary of building your own platform for your own sake. Right? Let your ambition be in submission to God's authority. Right? Certainly be confident. God has said that we, he has said a king of Zion. We have confidence that God will do what he says, that we can trust him. But be bold. Right? But don't just be another voice doing what seems right in your own eyes. Right? We point people to Christ, so watch your ambition. Realize that selfish ambition is not, that is not in submission to God is sinful. Right? If you're a Christian, submit your ambition to God's kingdom. And welcome the Son as king. Be under his authority. Right? Six, submit your life to Christ. So we are called to repentance, and this includes submitting to God and his word in our daily lives. This goes back to, will you be shepherded or will you be broken? Right? That's why the church is so important. It's supposed to be an outpost, an embassy of God's kingdom in this world. So that when people look at the church, they look at God's people, and they, they can say, truly, these people do know God. Because look at them. Right? They are a peculiar people in this world. So what does the world see when they look at you, do they see the nations raging? Seven, God's people are given a heritage in Christ. Right? This inheritance is part of our hope as Christians. Be encouraged knowing that God has given the Son a heritage. I'm just going to jump over to First Peter here because of the thematic overlap. Peter understood the concept here. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation ready to be revealed at the last time. God's people are conquerors, not by their own accord, but because they participate in Christ. And so there's also the promise that the present order will not have the final word. Right? Psalm 2 is a promise given in hope. God will have the final word. So our inheritance is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading in Christ. Eight, take refuge in him. Right? Knowing that we have an inheritance, and knowing his protection, we can take refuge in God. Even in a world where everything has not been made right yet. Right? Continuing on in First Peter, if you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. We can take refuge in God in joy because he is good. His victory is worthy to be celebrated. 
we could take refuge in God because in hope. In hope because he's appointed, the son is appointed by God, and his kingdom will stand. We could take refuge in God in confidence, knowing that he blesses those who take refuge in him. And so Psalm 2 is fulfilled in Christ, and we take refuge in the Son. So where do you take refuge this morning? What's your hope in the future? Is it in the nations or in the Son? What do you consider your heritage? What do you, when you look back on your life, what do you identify with? For Christians, their refuge is in Christ. Their heritage is in the Son. And so place your faith in Christ this morning. He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. So if you're a believer, don't let your refuge be in the kings of the earth. Don't settle for their temporary authority when we know that God is the one who sits in the heavens. The authority of the kings is temporary. Their victories are in vain. So even as you suffer loss in your personal life, even when you're discouraged, even as you feel a stranger and alien, look to Christ's words from Revelation. Only hold fast what you have until I come. People live in rebellion against God, but Christ will have victory in the end. Therefore, God calls us to follow Christ, take refuge in him. Both David and Jesus suffered at the hands of others. We don't know what tomorrow will bring for us. Life is fragile and the world is broken and the nations rage, which is why we must take refuge in God. Only hold fast what you have until I come. This is an exhortation from Christ to his church to hold to the gospel in the face of trials. And he backs it up with the promises given in Psalm 2. That Christ will have rule and authority in the end. So no matter how the kings of the earth assert their will, Christ is the true king. No matter how many people decide that they're going to place their lot with the raging nations... Rather than with Christ, you hold fast to the gospel and to God's promises until he comes.